and thanks for joining me for another episode of the History of Christianity. I'm Bertie Pearson. I'm the rector of Grace Episcopal Church in Georgetown, Texas, and I've also spent the better part of the last decade teaching church history at the Iona School for Ministry and occasionally at the Seminary of the Southwest. It's great to be with you. The Nicene Creed can really be thought about as three distinct sections. You have the section in the beginning that's about God the Father, you have the section in the middle that's about God the Son, and then you have the last section which is about God the Holy Spirit. So we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son. With the Father and the Son he is worshipped and glorified, he has spoken through the prophets. So this much we get, it's about the Holy Spirit. But it's, it's less information than we have about the Father or the Son. And then the Creed seems to just go on to other subjects. But really, these other subjects, baptism, the resurrection, the One Holy Catholic and Apostolic Church, these are still within the Holy Spirit section. These are still actually statements about what we believe about God the Holy Spirit. So why is that? So we believe in one Holy Catholic an apostolic church. A, what does that mean? And B, why is that a statement about the Holy Spirit? To understand this question, it's helpful to think about where this word church comes from. In the Old Testament, you have something that's often translated the assembly of Israel. So it's not the whole nation of Israel. It's not just the priests gathered together. It's what happens when all of the faithful of Israel are gathered around with God at their center, with God in their midst. It's like they have this religious assembly where God is both the focus, but also the presider. God is the one who's doing everything. And this word is the kahal. And literally, kahal means a group that's been called together, a group that's been convoked. The kahal is the group of people who have been called by God to worship him, as he presides in their midst, as he does everything in the midst of them. A couple hundred years before the birth of Christ, an Egyptian king wanted to compile all the greatest hits of the world's wisdom and put them in his library. And clearly on the list, one of those greatest hits would have to be the Torah, but he didn't speak a word of Hebrew. And so he called together, the story goes, these 70 translators, these were 70 rabbis, 70 scholars of Judaism, to come and translate the Torah. And they, they did this translation, which is often called the Septuagint, which in Greek means of the 70, because there were these 70 translators. And this is a really important translation of the Torah for a couple of reasons. One, the majority of Jewish people at this time didn't primarily speak Hebrew. They spoke Greek because they lived in diaspora all over the Greco-Roman world. And two, maybe even more importantly, this translation was seen within Judaism as an inspired translation. It was seen as though God had actually guided the work of these translators to create a perfect representation of the Hebrew in Greek. So most translations are flawed. Maybe in a sense all translations are flawed, because different language systems work in different ways. And it's hard to have just an easy one-to-one translation of anything. I know when I read the Bible in Greek, and my Greek is terrible, by the way. It's just like a seminarian's Greek. I had like one semester of Greek, but I still use it all the time, and I try and build it up uh, as weak as it is. 
when I read the Bible in Greek, when I read the New Testament in Greek, and then I try and incorporate what I've seen in the Greek into my sermon for the week, it's really challenging because the Greek, it's just, it works so differently than English. So you can have a scene like Christ saying to St. Peter, do you love me? And Peter in English seems to say, yes, I love you. And Christ says, feed my sheep. And then weirdly, he asks him again, do you love me? And he's like, Lord, you know, I love you. Feed my sheep. Do you love me? And he's like, why are you asking me all these times? It doesn't sound as weird in Greek because love that Christ is asking about and love that Peter is talking about are two completely different words. So in Greek, our Lord says, Peter, do you love me? And Peter says, I like you like a friend. And Christ says, no, Peter, do you love me? And Peter says, I totally like you like a friend. And Christ is like, Peter, do you like me like a friend? And he says, Lord, you know I like you like a friend. He's like, feed my sheep. So things get lost in translation. But according to the Judaism of the time before Christ and of Christ's day, things were not lost in the Septuagint. It was a perfect translation of the Hebrew into Greek. And this was acknowledged to the extent that in lots of places, if you had any translation, with this one exception of the Septuagint, if you had a translation of the Hebrew scriptures into Aramaic or whatever language folks in that community spoke, you would have a reading from a Targum and from an, an Aramaic translation, and then that would be followed by the same passage read in Hebrew, so that the Hebrew could correct the Aramaic for those who understood some Hebrew, so that if anyone had the advantage of knowing Hebrew, they could hear the real deal in the original. But when the Septuagint was read, that wasn't required, because it was an inspired translation, a perfect translation. So when the translators of the Septuagint are translating this word kahal, this assembly with those who have been called by God, gathered around God, when God is in their midst, when God is doing all the work, when God is, in a sense, the presider at this assembly, they chose the word ecclesia. And ecclesia is a compound word in Greek, ekklesio, and it means to be called out from. So the kahal is this group called together by God. And the Ecclesia is a group called together by God. People have been called out by God, have been chosen by God to be part of the people of God and to worship Him. And this is the word that the New Testament uses. Ecclesia, the church. The church, for the New Testament writers, is the situation when the people of God are gathered around God as their presider, when God is in the midst of us and we are worshiping. And God is one. God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God. And you can't necessarily separate out the action of the Trinity. It's not like the Son has one job, the Spirit has one job, the Father has one job. So they're always united in, in a sense. But it is the Holy Spirit who we see at Pentecost, it is the Holy Spirit who we see throughout the book of Acts, who is acting in the church, who is drawing people to the church, who is calling the church together, who is God in the midst of the church. And the church, for the New Testament writers, for the early church, is very much the work of the Holy Spirit. We are God's people called around God who is in the midst of us, who is doing everything, who is the presider, who is the focus, who is the object of worship. And this is God, the Holy Spirit. 
The church, in a sense, is certainly not a church building, nor is it a denomination. It's not Episcopalian or Orthodox or Methodist or whatever. Nor is it even, you know, I think we're sometimes fond of saying, the church is the people. The church isn't even the people. The church is the people gathered around God the Holy Spirit, called together by God the Holy Spirit, with God the Holy Spirit in the midst of us as our focus, as our presider, as the one who's actually doing everything. The Russian theologian Alexander Schmemann once said that people get confused, and they think that the church is an institution with mysteries, or is an institution with sacraments. So, sort of like you go to the bank, and they're an institution with money, or you go to Amazon, and they're an institution with packages, you go to the church, they're an institution with sacraments, but that's completely wrong. The church is not an institution with sacraments, said Schmemann. The church is a sacrament with institutions. So sometimes we get into this mindset of thinking that, in part, the church is this organization of people, and they have come together for a common project with a common goal, and they have raised some funds, and they have set some rules, and they come every Sunday, and they sit there, and they sort of try and do the same thing together. But that, said Schmemann, is not what the church is at all. The church is God the Holy Spirit calling his people together so that we can gather around him with him at our center, presiding. And this is true on Sunday in our worship. This is true in any daily services we might have, like morning or evening prayer or whatever. But this is also true in all of the work of the church, in the food pantries, in the lobbying that the church does in Washington, D.C., or whatever it is. It's always, if we are really being the church, if we are taking part in the church, it's always the work of God, the Holy Spirit. And we are called by him together around to witness that work, to let that work happen through our lives, through our words, through our thoughts, through our actions. But the church is not you and me. The church is not the church building. The church is not the denomination or whatever it says on the outside of the church. The church is God, the Holy Spirit, calling us together. We are the kahal. We are the ecclesia. We are the church. We believe in one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. It is a holy church because it is God at the center. It is God's holiness that is actuating and creating everything in the church. Without the holiness of God, without the presence of the Holy Spirit, we are just a profoundly ineffectual political action group. You know, we we sort of talk the talk of Amnesty International and do very little about addressing human rights, or whatever it is that we think we are called to address. Or we are a very middling, not at all hard to get into country club that creates a few, though not enough, opportunities for some sort of networking. Or we are a self-help group that is um, really too mysterious to be able to kind of put into like three easy steps to make yourself a better, more mindful better exercise, better eating, I don't know, whatever it is. Like, what is the church without the holiness? Without the holiness, we're just nothing. So we are one holy Catholic and apostolic church. Catholic. When folks in my tradition receive visitors, this is one of the first things that visitors are drawn to. Wait, 
you pray every Sunday in the liturgy for this Catholic church. I thought this was an Episcopal church. The Catholic church is down the road. Which, which one is it? Are you guys confused about your identity? We sometimes think about Catholic as being a um, denomination of Christianity or as kind of one brand of Christianity. So you have the Methodists, you have the Catholics, you have the Episcopalians, you have the Lutherans. Catholic long predates these sorts of splits. So in the olden days, by which I mean the first thousand years of Christianity, so for 1,000 years, everywhere you went in the Greco-Roman and post-Greco-Roman world, there was a church, well, most places that you went. And where there was the church, there was a bishop, and that was his diocese. And that was true in... If you went to southern India, that was true. If you went to the south of France, that was true. If you went to Great Britain, that was true. If you went into the hinterlands of Germany or Ethiopia or wherever. About halfway through that millennium, the first thousand years, you do have a split between um, some Christians in the East and other Christians in the East over one very specific, very complex point of doctrine. And so, after the Council of Chalcedon, you get this kind of um, fracture into the Catholic or Orthodox Church and the, what later gets called the Oriental Orthodox Church. So, the churches of um, Egypt and uh, Ethiopia, Eritrea, South India, Armenia, and so forth. But interestingly, in that split, there's just one thing that they disagree about. There's one aspect of the divinity and humanity of Christ that the two sides articulate differently, and it's such a different articulation that it takes them another thousand years to be in any sense reconciled. But now, if you ask most Egyptian or Greek or Anglican or Roman Catholic theologians, are we kind of saying the same thing about Christ? They'll say, yeah, we're totally saying the same thing about Christ, that that our articulations may be different, but we actually mean exactly the same thing, that Christ is fully divine and fully human. Um, so that split over that one specific issue where everything else remained the same on both sides, the way dioceses worked, the way the sacraments were understood, who the saints were, like everything else about Christianity on both those sides— That I don't think of as this monumental split in the way that the split that happens in 1054 is. So you get this one little split, that will kind of bracket in the the 5th century. But in 1054, you get the split between the Eastern Church and the Western Church. The churches that speak Greek and the churches that speak Latin, the churches that do things kind of in one cultural way, the churches that do things in another cultural way. Theologically, they're still basically on board with one another, but hierarchically, uh, they have some really big difference. The way that their polity works, the way they kind of structure the churches, um, that is a radical difference. And as those two churches split and become the Western Church and the Eastern Church, or the Catholic Church and the Orthodox Church, the two kind of grow further and further apart. Later on in the 1530s, you get this kind of third splitting of a Catholic or an Orthodox church in England, in which Henry VIII says, we're still Catholic, everything's exactly the same, except now we're willing to read a little bit of Luther, uh, but we have no Pope. So you have the split between the Church of England and the Roman Catholic Church, the Church of Rome. Um, But it's not like the various Protestant Reformations, which England later takes part in, Um, at this point, with these three splits, 
they really agree on most doctrine, but the kind of structures of the church are a sticking point. But before this, for a thousand years, Catholic meant something very different. It wasn't the Roman Catholic Church. Catholic just meant whole, complete, general, universal. So you have someone like Justin Martyr writing in the 160s, who both talks about the Catholic Church, meaning the universal church, and talks about the Catholic resurrection. And what he means by this is not the resurrection of people who have gone to Roman Catholic churches, like dead people who used to be Catholics. What he means by the Catholic resurrection is the universal resurrection, the day when everyone, the good, the bad, the ugly, everybody rises from the tomb. It is Catholic because it is universal. Everyone is called to this. So when we say we believe in the Holy Catholic and Apostolic Church, we mean that we believe in a universal church. We believe that there is, in a sense, this one assembly, this one kahal. There is this one ecclesia which is gathered around the Holy Spirit, which is called by the Holy Spirit, and it is the universal church. Super early on, at the end of the first century, beginning of the second century, This early, when you have these dioceses all over the world, and you have a bishop in each diocese, and he's kind of the last word, and the Diocese of Smyrna is just doing its own thing. There's no one over the Diocese of Smyrna except the Bishop of Smyrna. The Diocese of Ephesus is doing its own thing. There's no one over the Diocese of Ephesus except the Bishop of Ephesus. This early on, you get people talking about the Catholic Church, the whole church, So Polycarp of Smyrna, who is a bishop of Smyrna in the early to mid-2nd century, when he's about to be martyred, he starts praying for the whole church, the universal church, the Catholic church. He doesn't limit his prayers to Smyrna, but explicitly says, now I'm going to pray for the universal church, the church Catholic. Even earlier, Ignatius of Antioch, who is is martyred uh, maybe around 108 or 110, is talking about the whole church, the Catholic church, Christians everywhere, all those who are gathered in this one big kahal, this one big ecclesia, this one big gathering around the holiness of God through whom the holiness of God radiates into the world. For for these early Christians, it was not just about my little church on the corner or my little diocese, the church in my city or the church in my state. Everything was about the church, the whole body of Christians throughout the world and throughout time. We believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. So sometimes when we talk about church tradition, what we mean is organs or stained glass or whatever the kind of tradition is in the church that we belong to. There's In my tradition, there's a joke How many Episcopalians does it take to change a light bulb? And the answer is, change? My great-grandfather donated that light bulb to this church. You will not change that light bulb. And that's, that's kind of our understanding of church tradition. It's something we've done for so long, we may as well just keep doing it. But that's not what we mean by tradition in the church. Instead, what we mean by tradition is the apostolic tradition. So, Christ was with the apostles for three years of his public ministry. He died, he's resurrected, he teaches them for 40 days, 
The Holy Spirit comes upon them at Pentecost, and they go from being bumbling and confused apostles to being on fire with the Holy Spirit and spreading Christianity throughout the entire known world in a generation. So the apostles were given this astonishing amount of wisdom, this astonishing amount of truth, and they passed that on from generation to generation in the church. One of the most profound amazingly life-giving, beautiful ways they pass that on is through the Holy Scriptures. The kind of criteria for what's in the New Testament is, is this apostolic or not? Is this written by one of the disciples, like St. Matthew or St. John? Is this written by someone who traveled with the disciples, like St. Mark, who is with St. Peter day in and day out, hearing these amazing sermons and saying like, man, I got to write some of this stuff down and starts writing down the preaching of Peter. Like St. Luke, who serves with St. Paul for such a long time and is an eyewitness to all of these accounts in Acts. So the New Testament is this wonderful treasury of the apostolic tradition, of the apostolic writing, the apostolic witness of who Jesus is, what he did, what he taught, Uh, when he will come again, all these things, this is the apostolic tradition. But the apostolic tradition is not limited to the New Testament. The apostolic tradition continues to be passed down from generation to generation in the church. So we live in a written culture. For us, if it's not written down, it's not a pure, hard, provable, absolute fact. It's just kind of like rumor or hearsay or something. They lived in an oral culture. So most people did not experience the church, did not experience Christ by going down to the local bookstore and buying a Bible and turning to page one. They experienced Christ in preaching. They experienced Christ in the liturgy. They experienced Christ in the ways in which the apostles and the people who the apostles taught and the people who those people taught and the people who those people taught remembered Christ remembered the wisdom of the Holy Spirit, how this was passed down from teacher to student, generation after generation. The apostolic tradition is not in any sense a secret tradition, an occult tradition, and a tradition where you have to like, you know, really get in deep and get on the vestry or get on the altar guild, and then they start teaching you this like secret knowledge. No, it takes baptism takes confirmation. It takes being a full member of the church to even comprehend the apostolic tradition because we have to have the Holy Spirit within us explaining, in a sense, God to us before we can understand anything about God. But it is not a secret tradition. Um, Tertullian said that uh, there are some religious traditions who guard their wisdom and guard their knowledge and whisper it to one another. We proclaim it from the rooftops. We are shouting the apostolic tradition 24-7. So we are one holy Catholic and apostolic church, not only because we are founded by the apostles, but because we are marked by the apostolic tradition. We are a church of the apostolic tradition. We are the church doing the same things as in the way that the apostles did them. We are a church teaching the same things that the apostles taught. So if you are in a church and you receive the apostolic tradition and you say, you know what, we're just not going to do this stuff anymore. 
rather than Holy Communion, that is wine and bread, we're going to start using like flapjacks and coffee, and we're going to call it Coffee Church, and we're going to stop teaching um, that Christ was the Son of God, and we're going to say that he was the son of Joseph, and this is all about coffee and carpentry. That's not the apostolic tradition. You're no longer an apostolic church. And, you know, no disrespect to the coffee and carpentry church, but that's not doing Christianity. That's not what the apostles taught. And not only are we apostolic because we are marked by the apostolic tradition, formed by the apostolic tradition, proclaimers of the apostolic tradition, we also share the ministry of the apostles. The apostles are those who are sent to proclaim the message of God's love to humanity. And we, in our generation, are the apostles. We take up the mantle of the apostles. We take on the job of the apostles because we too are sent to proclaim the infinite, astonishing, incredibly wonderful love of God for every single man, woman, and child to all of humanity. We are an apostolic church. Our job is to preach the love of God, the goodness of God, the peace of God, the joy of God to absolutely everybody in all of our words, in all of our actions, in everything we as the church and we as Christians do. And in all of this, it is God the Holy Spirit who is with us, who is working through us, who is moving within us. If it weren't for God the Holy Spirit, for his work in the church, all of this would be utterly impossible and a crazy undertaking. Like, can you imagine just going to a group of random people, never heard of Christianity before, and saying, I have these basically impossible to comprehend things about this loving being who's fully present at every point in time and space, who became this little baby in Palestine and grew up real poor, and then was incredibly loving to everyone he met and was maybe the greatest, smartest exponent of theology ever, who then is jailed and beaten up real badly and then is executed in this horrific way and actually dies and then comes back to life, teaches for another 40 days and then ascends into heaven, but he's going to come back. And and it's like, A, what? What are you talking about? B, okay, even if all that's true, I'm not going to come sit in a room and just sort of hear more about all this crazy stuff that I can't even understand every single Sunday. C, I'm certainly not going to give you part of my hard-earned cash to build that room. Like, what? That's, that's a really insane proposal. You should sell Tupperware, Amway, or I don't know what it is you should be selling, but this is really impossible. It's only if God the Holy Spirit is actually doing the work. If we just show up and say, you know, here is where my heart is, here is where my joy is, and let him move through us. Let his holiness pervade our work as the church. Let God the Holy Spirit be the one who is presiding at our assemblies, doing everything in our worship, doing everything in our action. It is only then that we are the church. So we believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. And this is the work of God the Holy Spirit. Next time we'll talk a bit about the baptism for the forgiveness of sins, this continuation of the work of the Holy Spirit in the church. Thanks for joining me for the history of Christianity.